The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Urvashi Rangan. She is the Chief Science Advisor for Grace Communications Foundation based in New York. She also consults with food advocacy groups on food safety, labeling, and sustainability issues. Dr. Rangan received her PhD in environmental health from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and she has been a scientific investigator, policy decoder, spokesperson, and advocate on a wide variety of food safety and sustainability issues for the last two decades, including grass-fed standards and organic plus regenerative systems. Before joining Grace and consulting, she spent 17 years at Consumer Reports, where she led several scientific investigations on food and other products with toxic hazards, including BPA in plastics and canned foods, heavy metals in protein shakes, and arsenic in juices. She has testified before Congress on greenwashing claims, organic laws, and removing BPA from children's food. She's also one of my favorite guests on Food Sleuth Radio, and I wanted to bring her back to share her insights on the topic of fake meat, plant-based meat, cell-based meat, a flood of alternative meat products that have been flooding the market with great enthusiasm. So welcome, Dr. Rangan. Thanks so much, Melinda. It's great to be here. Well, I love the way you have gotten into subjects that are so important to everyone's plate. And I think that the enthusiasm for these alternative burgers is one that we need to address. You and I both have probably been into veggie burgers for decades. They've been around for a long time, mostly soy-based or bean-based. And now we have cell-based or lab culture, quote-unquote, meat We've got names like Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers. There's going to be an awesome burger out by Nestle in the fall of 2019. How are these burgers different? It's a great question. And in thinking about this new walk of food products that are out there, it kind of takes the processed foods we've known for a long time to a whole new level. And I think it's kind of a next generation of processed foods and What I mean by that is that we've had processed foods from plants, things like tofu, like you mentioned, and veggie burgers and things like beans, and they tend to come from natural processes like fermentation in order to make the tofu, for example, from soybeans, or simply beans themselves, for example, that are used in burgers where you have direct plant material, vegetables in the final product. These new generation of products really take it to the next level in terms of processing. So they're extracting protein, for example, from vegetables and then using that processed ingredient in a product. So it might be soy protein, it might be pea protein. And these proteins don't just fall out of the plant. These proteins have to be chemically extracted out of the plants through multiple steps, through factory-like conditions, often sterile conditions are required. So all of those things use a lot of energy. They use a lot of inputs. 
And a lot of these processing aids that are used to make many of the ingredients, including the proteins, are not going to be found on the ingredient list because they're not required to be on an ingredient list. So we're getting to a day where we're seeing products on the market that have new food ingredients, new ways of processing, and the regulatory oversight of those things is very minimal. Companies don't have to disclose when they use a new ingredient to the Food and Drug Administration, and they don't even have to actually demonstrate the safety of those things. And so it leads to a lot of questions about a lot of the ingredients that are currently in there. And then there's the greater questions as to whether or not these are truly sustainable alternatives to some of the industrial complex questions we have about how we make our food. Mm -hmm. And that is how they're being marketed. You know, there's this big movement against eating meat. And it seems that there are people who are strictly in the camp of if we're going to be sustainable, if we're going to really address climate change, we must eat less meat. And meat is put all together in one category without really factoring out, well, there's meat that's produced, say, on a factory farm or an industrial method or a CAFO, a confined animal feeding operation, that is absolutely not good for the climate. But then there's also this idea that what if we had more animals grazing and we had meat that was truly helping to capture carbon? That's a different category. And then we have the plant-based products. I'm not convinced that the plant-based or the cell-based or lab-based meat actually uses less energy at the end of the day. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think these are really great questions. And when people do assessments of these things, trying to look from kind of the birth of the product to the end of the product, it's called a life cycle assessment. And we try to integrate all of the inputs and outputs and integrate them into a calculation of their impact. The trouble with a lot of those life cycle assessments is that they don't include the processing part of a food. It often includes everything that gets you to the what we call the farm gate. And then everything that happens after the farm gate tends not to be included in these life cycle assessments. So that's something everybody should keep in mind when you hear about these life cycle assessments. Ask yourself that very, was this just at the farm gate or after the farm gate? And if it doesn't include after the farm gate, we really have a lot of questions. A lot of the life cycle assessments that have come out to date from these plant-based product companies do not include post-farm gate activity. And of course, processing is entirely a post-farm gate activity. So that's number one. Number two, when you just take the cell culture meat, for example, we haven't talked about that yet. Culturing live tissue in labs requires completely sterile conditions and incubators that are held at constant temperatures 24-7. So just that alone is a significant amount of energy you need to put into this process rather than, say, the pastures harvesting energy from the sun to grow the grass that has the nutrition for the animals to eat. So it's very different in terms of where that energy has to come in in order to create that in the first place. And with the cell-based products, you also need to, like I say, maintain sterile conditions, which means possibly chemicals used, antibacterials, all sorts of things in order to prevent contamination of those systems. You also probably need a lot of lab equipment in order to make sure that happens. So again, thinking it's sort of a factory 
based product in a lot of ways. It moves things off the farm and into a factory, and you need a lot of energy and input in order to create those things. I'll also say with the cell-based culture systems, a lot of the marketing around those products is that it reduces the number of animals, but it doesn't eliminate the animals. You still have to use, for example, fetal animal serum to grow cells. Uh, they're working on an alternative. It happens to be a genetically engineered alternative. And right now the cost is absolutely crazy. It's several thousand dollars for one liter of this modified genetically engineered serum. So it's not viable at this point. And it doesn't certainly reduce the need for animals. Another really interesting thing to note is they are trying to, as an industry, figure out how they might keep a cell line immortalized. And in order to immortalize a cell line so that you don't need to keep going back to an animal to start the culture again, you actually need to transfect these cells with a cancer gene. And that's what the science world's been doing for a long time in terms of studying impacts of things on cells. You use immortalized cell lines. Well, it's a different matter when you're now talking about eating immortalized cell lines. If an animal had cancer or a tumor during processing in slaughter, Technically speaking, that animal should not be going into the food supply. So now we're talking about possibly engineering these cells with an immortalized cancer gene. And that raises a lot of ethical questions. It also raises perhaps some health questions about what we're doing. And just to sort of then zoom out, again, are these processes really the right way forward from an energy perspective, from a health perspective, from a pure number of ingredients perspective, and then the sustainability questions. And that kind of gets to what you were talking about before, Melinda, which is meat is not meat is not meat. And we have very different systems out there. The media has not really done a great job of covering that issue, and a study that just came out recently that was done by General Mills of all companies and White Oak Pastures has actually shown a real potential to sequester carbon in grazing systems versus some of the other data that we've seen around conventional industrial systems, which really contribute a lot of carbon. And so... While meat may be a problem in the conventional industrial way that we produce it, and dairy as well, it's also actually part of the solution when we start to think about, well, how do we fix this? How do we reverse some of the things we've done? And are there actually ways to improve things? So I want to talk a little bit about soil and the fact that we have 60 years, for example, of topsoil left for harvest. And the reason we only have 60 years left is because we've been using all these pesticides and synthetic fertilizers and literally killing our soils. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge problem that doesn't get talked about enough. And stopping eating meat does not actually fix that problem. And actually, we have been grazing animals for thousands of years, and it used to be that the manures that were made for the animals could be directly then used to grow crops and provide that natural fertilization that you need versus a synthetic fertilizer that's either chemically made or mined that basically introduces nitrogen very quickly to the soil, but actually has all sorts of inadvertent consequences of ruining the ecology, the biome, and other life of the soil. It's actually killing the soil. 
And I think that's been a big missing piece of this discussion is that animals are not the only living thing when we talk about agriculture. The soil is actually a living thing too. And if we're talking about killing the soil in an effort to not kill animals, we're not really addressing the problem through the lens of a lot of these products currently. Growing more soy with genetic modification and pesticides is not actually necessarily the full sustainable answer to how do we reduce meat consumption and when we do consume it or dairy, how do we make sure it's better? And that's really the landing place we need to be in order to get our arms around this problem and to do the right systemic thing, which is regenerative agriculture practices, which are a complex of different things in order to ensure that you're not trading off by trying to implement one practice and not addressing another one. Mm -hmm. I so agree with you, Dr. Rangan. And there are so many questions that consumers really have to ask in the marketplace. For one, I think it's important for consumers to understand when they go into a grocery store, they're not going to easily be able to find 100% grass-fed meat. And I think that the growth of farmers' markets are a wonderful way to re-regionalize our food system because if anywhere, that's where we're going to be able to find a farmer where we can buy local meat. You can ask about how the meat is raised. I feel very blessed in that I have that in my own community. I can go to the farmer's market. I can buy beef from a farmer who assures me I can visit the farm that the cows receive nothing but grass for their feed. But in a supermarket, the consumer is really left to a sea of labels. And I know that you have been extremely vigilant when it comes to what kinds of labels consumers see. I need to take one break and just remind everyone who we're talking to. If you're just joining us, this is Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Dr. Urvashi Rangan. She is the Chief Science Advisor for Grace Communications and a consultant on all things food system and food safety related. So about the labeling, tell me what consumers can expect when they go into a supermarket. It's really a great question because when people go into a supermarket, you're faced with a barrage of different marketing claims, seals, pictures, photographs, and it's companies trying to depict what they think a consumer might want. And some of it's based on what they're doing, and some of it's really just based on marketing. And the challenge is that our government doesn't really require somebody to actually have to prove what they're doing with a claim. So anybody can put a natural claim on a product. Free range doesn't really mean anything. Even cage-free, eh, it may be about the cage, but again, these things are not addressing the whole systems. Even claims that have some meaning, like no antibiotics, it does one thing. It's not everything. Even the non-GMO claim means non-GMO, but it doesn't mean organic. And so it's important for consumers if you're interested in this, in purchasing more sustainable food, to understand what the labels mean and what some of the labels don't mean so that you can stay out of the traps and spending your money where it's really not even worth it because you're not getting anything more and knowing the labels that actually do mean something. 
in the case of grass-fed, for example, there could be a variety of grass-fed claims out on the market that mean the animal may have been fed grass, but it may have been confined. It may have ate grass pellets in confinement. It could have had drugs every day. It could have been physically altered and may even have been on a dry lot, literally with no pasture around it. That is not what people think about when they think about what grass-fed is. And so one of the efforts that we've been involved with and helping is how do we make sure that when companies or retailers are purchasing grass-fed, how can they know they're getting meaningful grass-fed product? And the Grass-Fed Alliance is a new organization that is dedicated to promoting the seals in the market that meet a minimum baseline for what grass-fed should mean. So it will come from an animal that ate 100% grass, that was not confined, that did not have drugs on a daily basis, where minimal pesticide use occurred and where synthetic fertilizer minimized to the greatest degree. There are also a few other baseline principles, but those are some of the core ones that through looking for these seals like animal welfare approved grass-fed or organic grass-fed, you can actually find these seals that meet the very minimum of what we think grass-fed ought to mean. American Grass-Fed Association is another one of those legitimate claims out there that at least gives you some sense that, yes, these animals had a truly grass-fed life on pasture. That's what we want to now start putting into the market is these delineations of what is meaningful and what is not. And that's what consumers, when consumers start to make those purchases in a meaningful way, they can actually shift demand faster than we can get policy changes in place. And so the power of the market and the power of your spending makes a huge difference in terms of what can happen and how the market can respond. I think the onus on consumers is you have to be able to weed through the nonsense out there and make sure you're getting what you expect and what you think is meaningful in the market. That is the challenge, and that requires the homework and the legwork. But to the degree you can do that and know and support the meaningful labels out there is to the degree we will actually get more and more sustainable products into it. It sounds like, from my reading, that a lot of the cattlemen's associations have been a bit disturbed by the ability to label some of this cell-cultured or lab-produced meat as meat. And so some states are working through their legislatures to make sure that anything that carries a meat label actually does come from, and I quote here from Missouri, passed legislation defining meat as an edible portion of livestock or poultry carcass or part thereof. And there are about a dozen states that usually the cattle producing, meat producing states that are very sensitive to what's going to happen to their bottom line if and when these cell cultured or lab based meats really take off. Yeah, and it really gets to this question of standards of identity for food. And the Food and Drug Administration actually has hundreds of pages of legislation about defining foods. And that may seem silly, but it's actually really important. So one example would be for yogurt. What is yogurt? And what you'll find in the standards of identity regulations around yogurt is that it has to have a minimum amount 
of quality protein casein or whey in that yogurt in order to be called that. Otherwise, you can't call it that. And that's why American cheese is a processed cheese product. You may not actually just call it cheese. It's a processed cheese product because it doesn't have the minimum amount of quality protein that you need to even call it cheese. And so it is a processed product. So this controversy that's going on in the meat space right now is not new to food. It's new to meat because of these new products. But if you synthesize something, say vitamins, for example, you can get your vitamin C from an orange or you can get it synthetically because someone manufactured that chemical exactly in a lab. But you would never say that's a natural vitamin C. You would call it a synthetic vitamin C. So if you think about it, this is not that much more unusual in that there is meat that comes from its natural source or dairy that comes from its natural source. And then there are these other products on the market that are trying to be an alternative to that. But frankly, the National Cattlemen's Beef Association has a point. They don't really meet what the current standards of identity are for meat or dairy products. And I think it's also about being truthful with consumers so that they're not confused. Consumers have a right to know that that synthetic meat product or alternative is produced in a different way. And so the co-opting of these names so you can make consumers more comfortable buying it and make them just think it's the same thing is really in some ways a way to deceive consumers into thinking it's the same thing. And I think if these companies want to stand by their products, why not tell consumers what it is and let them make the decision as to whether or not they want to buy it and not misrepresent your product by calling it something that consumers have bought for decades but that isn't actually the same thing as what consumers have been buying all these years. And so consumers, frankly, we all have a right to this information. We have a right to know about the ingredients that are used. And I would argue we have a right to, for ingredients to be proven to be safe before they're put into products. The Impossible Burger, for example, has introduced 47 new proteins into the human diet. And or it's 48 technically, and 47 of them have absolutely no data behind them in terms of what they might do. As we're trying to understand our own gut biomes, our own health, how it all works, we have absolutely no idea what these proteins may be doing, it, singularly or in concert. That's just one example of question marks that are raised throughout looking at an ingredient list of any of these alternative products where we don't have the information. And so to call it something that you recognize and have recognized as a food product that's been in the market for years and years, frankly, isn't a very fair representation. And I'll also say that that industry is spending inordinate amounts of money suing state governments in order to change these labeling policies. I'm not sure that's the greatest use of money. And frankly, I think that if these companies want to stand by their products, they should call them what they are and be very transparent with consumers about what they are so that we can track these things over time and see if they truly bear out. But to start to conflate their identity with other products that have been on the market for years and years is a bit disingenuous. I agree. And just so our listeners know, the impossible 
foods and the Impossible Burger is made with genetically engineered soy. And for most consumers who are thinking they want to eat healthier, they want to eat a plant-based diet, I would think that that mindset, that group of consumers are also looking for organic and non-GMO products because for someone like myself that lives in the soy and corn belt of the United States, I can tell you that soybeans are not only sprayed with Roundup, but now they are increasingly sprayed with harsher chemicals to defeat weeds, such as dicamba and 2,4-D. So if I am looking for a plant-based burger, and I have a local restaurant in town that makes a wonderful veggie-based burger, they use black beans and mushrooms and some other vegetables and nuts, it's delicious. But for me personally, I would not want to be consuming genetically modified soybeans under this sort of illusion that this was a healthier product for me and the planet, because they might argue that it's more sustainable. But I can tell you from a person living in that corn and soy belt, it's not. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting marketing effort to, and it's hard to understand who these companies are marketing to or what they understand of the audience they are marketing to. Because there is a lot about meat alternatives, being better for the environment, being healthier for you, and reducing your impact. But again, I think there's a myopia that is not really fully realized from these companies that these consumers actually then we'll expect that from all the ingredients. And so it's a bit odd to have all of that marketing surrounding your product when you are using GMO soy that will require glyphosate. There was just a study recently showing that these products contain glyphosate. And I'll just say there's been another study out of Missouri actually on how grass-fed beef systems um, and testing those products actually don't have glyphosate. And so I think we do need to talk about the nitty-gritty, unfortunately, because plant-based has now become this buzzword that's supposed to be good, but that can range from a carrot being pulled out of the ground, that's plant-based, and eating the carrot, to these teams that are manufactured with genetically engineered yeast that make 47 other inadvertent heme proteins that are all going into the burger, and that's considered plant-based. So there's a huge spectrum behind that terminology. I think that they have pushed it into a space that now does not really comport with consumer expectations. And of course, they don't have to label it as GMO. And so if you don't know, you don't know. And you won't know from buying that product. So there's transparency issues with this. There is the logic that they're sort of imposing that it is sustainable. But then when you sort of peel that onion, you realize, well, wait a minute, this actually is going to require more pesticide use. I actually need seven pounds of pea in order to get 19 grams of pea protein for one Beyond Burger burger, one four-ounce burger. So how much pesticide and fertilizer then had to go in to make the seven pounds of peas to get you 19 grams of pea protein to put in your four-ounce burger? And these are the questions that are not being legitimately answered. And in fact, in many ways, you don't know this from looking at a package, for example, that all this might be going on. So there are legitimate questions to ask. 
and the overall sustainability of the entire process, I think, is really in question. Well, I want to thank you so much for pulling back the curtain on these new products. I knew you would be terrific. We need to close, but in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Urvashi Rangan. She is the Chief Science Advisor for Grace Communications Foundation based in New York. Thank you so much for helping us understand these complex issues. My pleasure, Melinda. Thank you so much.